Welcome to Unpleasant Movies Conversations. For this episode, I'm talking to Hanan Benamar and the play Ways of Seeing, which debuted in 2018. And there was a huge controversy around the aftermath of that play. It's a pretty amazing and interesting story, and there are a few parallels to it, I would say, involving terrorist actions and police inquiries, and uh, there's a bit of a twist. Yeah, it's quite um, fascinating. I initially recorded this episode a while back, but I was waiting to publish it because there's a trial going on concerning one of the people involved so this case has started to get some international traction. The Guardian has written about it. The controversy that ended up with our justice minister being fired and his partner taken to court for faking terrorist actions, basically. She's currently pleading not guilty, but there's a, there's a lot of accumulating evidence that indicate quite strongly that she very likely is, as well as having this chat group with other people in their hierarchy of politics uh, where they're kind of discussing how to deal with this play and, and the people in it. It's really a, a fascinating story. The trial is set to be finished in November, so we'll see how that turns out. We'll probably make a good movie eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a small mention. At one point we're talking about PST, which is the um, Police's Security Service. But it sounds a little bit like she's saying the secret police <laughs> And that's a conflation because in Norwegian, the word for safety is sikret. So she's saying sikret politia, and it sounds a bit like secret police. But we're not talking about the secret police. She's talking about the Norwegian police security service who are investigating these terror actions, attempted bombings and, and threats sent in the mail and stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. It's, it's really fascinating. And I'm sure it's the kind of thing that you'll hear more about um, as it goes along. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies Conversations. Today I'm with artist Hanan Benamar, and we're talking about her play Ways of Seeing. Hello, Hanan. Hello, thanks for an invitation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're an artist based in Oslo. Yes, that's correct. I um, grew up in Paris, in France, and um, my parents are both from Algeria. Uh-huh. And uh, I studied both in Oslo and in Netherlands for a Master of Art and also in France before for the BA. That's basically it. So Ways of Seeing, that was a play with its initial run 2018 in November. Yes. Uh, that's a couple of years ago now. And uh, tell me about how did that project get started? Uh, so Pierre Mayarol, who's the director of the play, contacted me I mean, we, we knew each other a little bit from before because we were involved in a group project some years ago. And then mm. in, I think it was one and a half year before we had the premiere, mm. she asked me to just have a chat and she told me that she wanted me to, to work with her and that she had been working on a play that at that time had a different title than Wise of Seeing okay. and that it was about surveillance. Uh-huh. And she had been working with Katie Lund, who was the Supreme Court judge in the 90s. And yeah, so that the play was about surveillance and she was interested in linking surveillance with current racism in Norway okay. and colonial history and so on. And that she really wanted the story of my father to be part of the play and also like, she didn't say my character, but like my, yeah, the way I speak she was interested in the way I was speaking for some reason. I don't, I don't like know. Like the point of view. Uh, yeah, that. the point of view and the way of, yeah, 
the way I was speaking also. <laughs> Apparently, I, don't, I can't really no. <laughs> uh, develop more on that. But, uh, but anyway, I think it's also a lot the way she works because that's documentary theater. So I think she's interested in people's personalities <laughs> and <laughs> things like that. So and have them on stage and work with them to develop their stories. And so it's like it's a very collaborative form of working also. Right. And I, I think that's kind of trademark of her work a lot. And she's very good at seeing also like people's characteristics and personalities and like humor and like insecurities and like all of these things. So I think that's... Yeah, that's useful for a director. Yeah, of course. So she's a very good director, but also that's her work. Her work is really about the people on the play. And mm. and then first I say no, because I, I'm i not so much of a stage person. Mm. And uh, I just thought like, okay, I'm not an actor. So mm. I can't really be, I'm probably not a good actor if I'm not an actor in the first mm. place. It was a little bit scary, I think, as a sort of like being on stage and remembering text and all of these things. And then I thought that I should probably say yes, because it's it puts me outside of my comfort zone. Because I think I'm a little bit like at some level, I'm a little bit lazy. I like being challenged, but where I still feel like somehow I can, it's in my comfort zone. Mm. I think most people are like that, actually. But you hadn't done any stage work at all before. No, I mean, I... Uh, of course with music but I think it's yeah. so different it's yeah. like completely like you can you know if, when if you play in a band it doesn't matter it's so many things that don't really matter in yeah. terms of being on stage yeah because you're in the band uh, Fail Control Fail Control like, which is a yeah. noise band we can say to make yeah. it short but being on stage as like as a theater level is something completely different because it's really like hundreds of people really looking at you <laughs> like <Yeah>. every single <laughs> centimeter of your body and your face and everything you say yeah. and everything becomes like so important and visible and stuff so I think it's yeah you're more exposed in a way completely yeah. it's like being naked like <laughs> at the supermarket or like this kind of <laughs> all the eyes are on you it's, and I know because I've been a lot to theater as an audience and yeah. I know how much like you get so like you have some demands as an audience, you know? Sure. And then you, you <laughs> it's all this scrutiny, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, so I was like, oh my God, that's the worst. <laughs> and then I thought I should do it exactly because I think it's some of the worst setting as like an art form mm. in a way. So, so I said yes. And then she involved Sarah as well. Yes. Uh, and then later on, so then we started working. It was mostly discussing yeah. together and taking notes, to make some writing exercises. Mm. And I will talk about my father a lot and Algerian history. So it will be also some research, of course, to like check some, you know, factual aspects. And then the previous play that is called Nola Pavi, which is actually still touring with uh, DECOES and school programs and so on. That was her previous play. That was her yeah. previous play, Nola Pavi, now we run. Mm. It was a play that was she made together with Sarah Baban and mm. Buzan Baban, who's the brother of Sarah. Okay. And it is about, yeah, how they fled from Iraq as children, how it was for them as children to live as refugees in different countries before they arrived in Norway that whole story and so she had been working with Sarah a lot before and then at some point she thought it would be really interesting to because we talked a lot about Algerian war of independence mm-hmm. and then we thought it would be super interesting she thought it would be super interesting to discuss I mean in a way not to compare but to just kind of confront different times of different revolutions in a way okay because you have the Algerian war of independence which is the 60s and then today you have Rojava mm. and your father was part of the uh... my father was part of the Algerian war of independence mm. in the 60s 
And then Sarah being Kurdish, not only because of that, but being Kurdish and interested in all these independence movements and so on, had been visiting Rojava in North Syria in actually like early 2018 as part of the project. Mm. And we thought it would be super interesting to... I mean, she went, she went there because she was interested, but also because we thought it would be so important for the play that she would go at that point. So we could include it in the work on that uh, to balance the play also in a way that it's not just, you know, like this kind of past histories and so on, but really like also connected to the present, mm-hmm. like the now kind of, not just the present, but like the right now, because uh, it's still like the whole Kurdish um, movement is still happening, of course. And it's very interesting because it's kind of completely different from other revolutions from before, or the other movements, other social movements. So it's very inspiring for people that are interested in like feminism and yeah. There was a thing about like the role of women in the revolution. They were quite mm. prominent. Uh. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I mean, Sarah would be much better to kind of introduce it and so on. But it's um, women's rights is like one of the pillars of the. Yeah. So you have ecology, women's liberation, and direct democracy. Mm. So that's like the three main pillars. Yeah. What is interesting is that it's also like really about giving women a space and a voice and agency for taking decisions and so on. And it's not trying to say that women should be like this or like that, or it's not having any judgment on how women should be, Mm -hmm. but it's more like giving that agency for deciding upon your own Mm -hmm. life and so on. And also they have developed these classes where they, they teach women about women's rights, women's body, like, you know, all of these things. And they also teach men about that, but mm-hmm. it's like se- like separately and, and together as well. Okay, okay. So yeah. it's also kind of interesting as like a strategies as how to discuss things and how to have an actual effect on people and stuff. So I think a lot of things there in terms of methodology that are super interesting and that we wanted to kind of also give as an opportunity to think for our audience, which is mostly like white Norwegians, a little bit like yeah, middle class culture field and so on, to think that it's possible to imagine that as Europeans can learn from another movement that comes from the Middle East Mm -hmm. and that we can actually learn from it in order to change things we have here. I think it's a nice way of thinking because feminism is often thought as like something that is... uh, exclusively Western. Yeah, There's some sort of a cultural hierarchy to that stuff. Yeah, and I think uh, this kind of giving a bit of focus on, on movements like this, I think is, is very important to do because it's like we tend to forget also very quickly about those. It's so much information mm. about absolutely everything, but also like I think it's nice to give it a bit of space also. And so that's why it was so important to have Sarah on board. And also she's a very, I mean, for me, it was great because she's an actual actor. (laughs) So it's trying to be a little bit of confidence, like, you know. (laughs) And then we also had to find, or Pierre thought, okay, what about my father who's passed away and everything? And so then we thought it would be interesting to introduce a character that is not, that is a character. Mm. Because you and, uh, and Sarah, you act as yourself in yeah, that play. Yeah, it's ourselves and Ketil Lund as well. It's Ketil himself. Lund, yeah. And then you have Ali Jabari, who's the ghost of my father. Mm. So it was also very funny to try to... We had this um, casting <laughs> sessions, you know, and uh, that was really funny because there was one guy we found before, Ali, who's a really nice guy and a great musician. Mm. But then he didn't like the dog. 
and it's, it's a dog it's impossible to dislike mm. because like a very cute dog so we were like that's very strange that can't be my father like so it becomes this very like um personal yeah yeah decisions kind of. it's it's complicated with casting like the dynamics yeah. with the people on stage mm. yeah it had to be someone that could like could have been my father mm. in a way like um or that would not be like completely different mm. In, uh, so it was more about the personality in a way. How was it for you to pick your own father in a way? <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, I think with Ali, it was also something about to relate because it's. I'm very interested in this idea of this idea or this concept of like being like in relation to each other. Like mm-hmm. not, um, you know, when I if I just take a little step back, if I think of Hans Fanon, for example, who's writer from Martinique and has this interest for Algeria and mm. goes there. And then writes about uh, what is happening and all of these things of how to relate, you know, all these steps that have been done always in history, but also that actually made very important movements in both art and literature and so on. You know, you look at someone or something and you can relate. You're not, it's not the same mm-hmm. or anything, but you, yeah, there is this thing of relating. Of being, some kind of connection. Yeah, these connections, you know, that are being, that we have to make. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it, you know. And so what was nice is that he could... Even though he's not he's not from Algeria, he's not la la la, but he was from Iran or he's from Iran and mm. he could immediately like, and he's from a different generation and so on, but he could immediately like relate to the struggle of my father. Yeah. And even though if they, they don't have at all the same culture or mm. like, don't have the same experiences, but this thing of like being able to like make this almost like this knitting between people, you know, mm. this attitude was more important than finding someone that was from Algeria, from the same generation, mm. from the same, you know. Sometimes you can have more links with people that have nothing to do with your culture than, than your true, brother yeah. or your, you know. And that's what makes it interesting to mm. be in a society and all of these strange things that we do every day. It was nice, actually, as a process and also to discuss with him. There was also lots of input from other artists. And because the way we worked is also a lot by discussing with other people okay. and asking them, okay, you know, making lots of research, but also like trying to kind of not interview, but like talk with people on certain subjects okay. and take notes and like, you know, develop. So his character in a way was also linked. I mean, it was a lot about the way I perceived my father, of course, and what he told me about the war and so on, but also like like based on a lot of other people's mm. writings, like Fanon and Césaire and all of these writers and also interviews with other people. So what do you do? Do you write some of your own thoughts about your father and then talk to someone else about it? So What we did a lot is that we would talk and then mm. record and then transcribe mm. and then rewrite mm. and then talk again. So it would be lots of layers of like... Talking, recording, transcriptions, rewriting, mm-hmm. performing it, blah, 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 like lots of those layers until mm. it becomes something. Then, you know, you change the words and you change the angle and, you know, it's like a dough in a way. Actually, it's a little bit like this pizza, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you really, you have to work it, you know, very well first. And then you really have to spin it in all directions until mm. it becomes, you know, what you want. So that was very interesting for me because it was the first time I worked with text like this. Mm. And also, we were all working on all the text all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? It would be like, now I've, I wrote that text, what do you guys think? Okay, and then we have to, we take some rounds and then, okay, let's go, like you're on stage, you know, we will just be in the studio. Okay, just read that and we give feedback. And mm. then, I mean, some texts are more personal than others, mm. but it's also lots of collective works, of course. That was interesting also, like, because it, it is very... For me, it was very scary, this thing of like imagining myself on stage and then telling my story, blah, mm. blah, blah, and then just being like, 
it doesn't sound like the most appealing situation mm. you mm. want to be in. But then when you in the process, it, what was nice for me is that it was so many collective rounds on everything that it becomes, it's your text, exactly what you would normally say almost, but mm. it's been worked on it so much by everybody. You also discover other people's stories and uh, like this, and it's uh, you develop like this relationship also that is a new kind of friendship in a way. It was a very, very intense process, mm. extremely intense due to lots of personal aspects also. Yeah, it was some of the most intense process I've been through now. Some of the most, as mm. if I had a lot to compare with. <laughs> the most intense <laughs> process I've been involved in. And um, at some point, I mean, many times I felt like maybe I should just give up and then someone else can do it, you know. Mm. But then I'm happy I didn't do that. And if I will have to do it again, I will do it again. And it was also lots of fun. I mean, really, it yeah. was very intense. It was lots of uh, drama and crying <laughs> and shouting, and but also just very fun. So that was nice. Now, how long time did you spend uh, writing it? Pia started before. I don't exactly remember when because I wasn't involved with Katie Lund mm. on surveillance. And then I arrived one and a half year before the premiere. Mm. And Sarah just like quickly after me, like quite uh, shortly after. But we were rehearsing until, or we were working until the really last days. And I just remember this thing of getting my text, my final text, finally, like, I think it was 10 days before the premiere. Okay. <laughs> and there's like this complete freak out moment. And then thinking, it's not going to happen, really. Mm -hmm. So you will be fine. You can just get away. Like, it, it, it won't happen. It's yeah. not possible. Maybe something, you know, it gets get cancelled, like, mm. you know, something happens, you know. And then it's like the other party, like, completely freaked out. Mm. And, like, uh, it is happening. <laughs> That's <laughs> an interesting uh, mix. And then also I had the longest text and I had never learned text like that before mm. to learn by heart and stuff. And until the day before, like, we had the General Preveur the day before and oh. I, I still didn't remember parts of my text. Mm. So it was, uh, it was really, I still remember like the feeling physically, like the stress mm. of not really sleeping well and, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, <laughs> like just thinking about your text or if you're late for rehearsals, like, you know, this kind of yeah. thing. And then, um, and also because it's not just text, of course, you're, you're on stage, it's the text, but you have to move and we're performing music as mm. well. You know, it's like a lot of elements. So mm. for me, it was like uh, really uh, crazy. I remember being completely beyond exhaustion in a way because you're also very pumped up by stress and adrenaline mm. in a way so it's like just complete little bit madness uh, thing but uh, is it easier when you have other things you're doing on stage beside the talking like the music and stuff does that kind of ease up like the stress on the remembering the your lines yeah. yeah what was interesting for me to learn was that when you start being on stage mm. in the process in this rehearsal moments and you're moving mm. it's also the body remembers yeah, it's yeah. like these moments like the connections between the movements and the sounds and the other texts and all of these things come together and it's a much easier way of remembering text mm. and also afterwards because then we had a premiere and then we performed a few times i think it was seven times mm. But then it was a long time until we didn't perform because yeah, yeah. nobody wanted yeah. to invite us because there was so much chaos. Hmm. And then I thought, shit, I'm never going to remember that text because really <laughs> I struggled. You know, I was walking, I was trying to find techniques to learn the text. And I was walking around like some crazy person in Birklunden, like just t <laughs> taking rounds, you know. <laughs> And like reading out loud, I was trying all the techniques and then some people would be like, yeah, but try to imagine and have this visual, you know, mm -hmm. you have because you have some techniques. But for me, I was like, 
what is I just have to read it 10,000 yeah. times. Mm. So I've literally done that, like reading it 10,000 <laughs> times again and again and again and again. <laughs> we wake up in the morning, read it out loud and Matthias will have to hold it and he will be like so fucking like, come on, can we have like breakfast at least or like, <laughs> can we have coffee? Like, But the body remembers. So it was nice when you come back on stage afterwards and then you're like, oh yeah, once you start moving, then there's something that happens also like the text comes also. Mm. So um, that was interesting, these things. Uh, yeah. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the title, Ways of Seeing. Yes. Now, this is also the title of a book and a TV series by John Berger. Mm. Why did you choose to use this title and uh, what does it mean for you in, in context of this? At the beginning, it was being inspired by his work and, you know, sort of like trying to turn the gaze and try to like unpack a lot of history mm. and art history and how it intertwines with politics and all of these things. There was a very kind of almost like a reminder of what art is also, mm -hmm. that you can also do that and go in and really unpack things and turn the gaze and all of these things. And then it became like a symbol of everything because of what happened with the piece so it became yeah. so that's why i was spelling because it actually meant more than what mm. we thought or anticipated but the beginning was almost like an homage also because he also had just died like uh, very recently i think Holy. because also what's interesting with this kind of works is that it's old enough so that we all kind of know it in a way we all mm. have it in the back of our, like we have heard of it you mm. know and for lots of artists it's like an important work obviously But also it's uh, the 70s, you know, hmm. there is this particular time where I think we still lots of us are inspired by and also in art as contemporary art. I mean, contemporary art is the 70s, like, you know, mm, mm. <laughs> that's when it starts somehow. It's, it's interesting, his insights in terms of what oil painting is and how it relates yeah. to class and gender. And gender. And class and mm. it's so interesting. It feels very relevant still today. Yeah, very relevant and super important. And it became, I mean, just for this as like the title and in relation to the play, it was more, it wasn't like we are doing the same or mm. it wasn't like it's about John Berger. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it was more like kind of homage and acknowledgement and also like reminding people of it in a way. But what was interesting is that we thought we were like, is it a good idea to use that title? Because we just thought it would be maybe too dominant in mm -hmm. a way. But then what happened was the opposite, that nobody, yeah. none of the journalists even really realized that it was a connection. Yeah, yeah. And we have in the text, it's a lot of references that mm. are very obvious for people that know mm -hmm. the original text. Like, you know, I mean, John Berger is basically the title and just like the thinking around, you know, art and relation to class and gender and all of these things. Mm. But then it's a lot uh, about, you know, post-colonial thinking and... Yeah. in the text and it was so nice because we're, we're translating the manners because we're going to work on an international version of the play All right. and it was so nice to get this email from the translator who said there is that part in the text where it's your father Ali's role the, the ghost of my father it really really reminds me of Franz Fanon I thought maybe it was a quote Mm. But I don't find that quote in uh, Rage of the Earth. So that means he also knows the text very well, which mm. is always very nice when people know some text like that very well because it comforts you in just this shared space in a way. And I answered her like, uh, it's not a quote, but it's probably a paraphrase mm. uh, and also links to, for example, I think for my father, when Franz Fanon was active, 
for my father, it was like someone was putting words on what they were experiencing, hmm. you know? Then it becomes interesting when, like, where did the paraphrase start, oh, in a yeah. way? Because <laughs> when you write about something and you're, you're a doctor or you're a philosopher and so on, you also, like, you're already paraphrasing a time, in a way. It was nice to see that someone at least had noticed the references, but at no moment the journalist even noticed the obvious ones, which is, like, the title. Like, you don't really need to read anything else than the title, but that was that didn't come. I think it was only like one yeah. art critic, like Kunst critic. They would know. Yeah, they <laughs> could not, not. <laughs> I mean, but uh, I mean, it, it is very easy if, if you Google ways of saying. You don't have to be like heavily educated to find out mm. at least mm. about. The title also works very well with the themes of the play. I mean, it's very integrated yeah. into what you're actually talking about. Exactly. It's not just an homage, but it's... No, exactly. Uh, and it's also these different stories, different mm. gays coming together and also looking a lot. We were also trying to, at least in my character, mm. perform the text is also to always look at the audience like really like carefully. Mm. And almost like even in the back when it's dark, you know, really I try to focus and like take the time to even see those faces that are in the dark, you know. So you can see people quite well from yeah. the stage. Yeah, yeah and, I, and that's also one of the points, especially in the introduction of the play, which is my monologue. It's light still in the audience, so I can see the audience even better. Mm -hmm. So I really go and like look and at each row and like everybody got one little, you know, <laughs> moment. <laughs> it's like really go and like, you know, look at each face and each gaze and like, you know, to, 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 like go like this, like really methodically actually and several times and everything. And Is that uh, something you thought of yourself? Or? We discussed it while we were making the mm. play. And also it was... Uh, I mean, it is very scary to do that. I think yeah. I was like dying. I was like dying. And uh, I talked about it with the ex-husband of my boyfriend's sister, who's an actor, hmm. uh, quite established in Sweden. He was asking, how was it for you to be on stage for yeah. the first time? All thing. When I told him that, he was like, are you insane? <laughs> like I would not, I would never do that. <laughs> like the whole point is that you don't really see people. Like you see a little bit in the front, but mm. you know you have these lights, you know, so you can just go in and do your, you know. He was like a little bit freaked out that yeah. I, I was really insisting on watching and looking at each. Because you could easily think that you'd get distracted by having to look at people. Yeah, yeah, but you do. I mean, it is, you have to f be like a little bit in control. And you can be like, because the thing is that you feel exactly what's the mood in the audience. Mm -hmm. And wh when people are really like into it or not at all, or very hostile, yeah. or very annoyed. <laughs> like you really see all people yawning and some people snoring. Like you see everybody like really. And so sometimes if the audience is too nice, you can get a little bit too like carried away and mm. be like too cool and stuff. Okay. <laughs> which has happened. And then when the when it's too hostile, which has happened also, like not a lot in general, because it can feel also like that but it's not that people are hostile, but it's more the feeling of hostility would be more like because I know in my text that there are some parts that should be funny. I remember I think it was like all the Sino Bergen. Like nobody laughed. It was like this one joke that I knew that it's a cracker, okay? Mm. Like, <laughs> And nobody laughed. It was like just this like small <laughs> laughter like in the back somewhere, <laughs> like, you know, very yeah. discreet. And I was like, this is so strange. And I got a little bit like mm -hmm. scared almost like. And so then you get a little bit more like, um, yeah, it influences your mood on stage also. Mm. If you're so aware of all the audience. 
but it's good to have some tension, not to be too cool and not to be too shy and all of this, but try to be really present and a little bit scared and at the same time a bit confident. I, it's a strange mix, hmm. but... I guess uh, it's a matter of experience. Yeah, no, it's nice becoming experienced, but at the beginning it's just like intuition or I don't know. But I remember the first, oh my God, the premiere. <laughs> it was so funny because I was, I was, just, I was just thinking about the text. And I think I was just walking like this, like a robot, because I, I was just like, you know, turn right, la la la. Like I was just thinking really like, because in the text it also says, you know, yeah. you enter there. But I was walking like in such a stiff way, it's just because I was just, I have to go there, you know. No, it wasn't like I'm moving, it was really like this mission moment and just trying to remember the text and being very <laughs> tense. And you know, when the shoulders are like all the way up to the ears almost, and you're like, just like holding your breath in a way and hope that... It will go fine. And there is this scene where I'm sleeping, supposedly, mm. and Sarah is talking to my father, blah, 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 blah. And I'm supposed to be, like, sleeping. And then I, I was just shaking. I was like this, <laughs> shaking on the floor <laughs> because I was just so stressed. And like, and then just, you know, I had to close my eyes. But then at the same time, I was thinking of the next scene and yeah. what I had to do <laughs> and all of these things. And it, I was just, like, on the floor, you know, like this. Yeah. Now, um... I guess we should probably say something about what the play is about <laughs> specifically. Uh. Yeah, the play is about many things in a way, one can say. But I think in general, I think it's about racism. But it's not about, because it's been talked about a lot, like that the play was showing who was racist in a way. Mm. Because we are filming houses of people, putting names and so on. But it's more about how racism plays an important role in relation to capitalism mm -hmm. and how you need these sort of systems of oppression, basically, in order for capitalism to thrive. So that's like the basic idea. So there is a kind of my story in a way, which is basically like the monologue telling how I perceived Norway before and how I realized things were different than my perception, which is very obvious. Because it charts your story moving to Norway from France and your mm. uh, like the political climate in France versus Norway versus Algeria. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then because the year I moved to Norway is a few months later is the Breivik attack. Oh, yeah. I think it's a shock for the whole world, but of course, mm. especially in Norway. And for me, it was like this realization that everything I thought about, everything was wrong, kind of like completely different mm. from what I thought. And I had to find out a little bit at some point what was going on in a way. Mm. And also it's something I think when you are so used to, not so used to, but I'm, I don't know how to explain, but it's something when your family has several generations of oppression and all of these things, I think you kind of, you have this training that we're not really aware of, mm. but you're very sensitive to do all of these things, like on how the language is changing, mm -hmm. how people look at you, how people, like the way people talk about things, you know, like how mm -hmm. these small words, even just small expressions there and there, what it means to which ideology it belongs. That is not just like accidentally being there, that there is like a process of radicalization and so on of people. Mm -hmm. How to explain that? Because it's not, if racism was something that would just be like belonging to the X and right, then we would be fine. And that's the sense we've had throughout the 90s, at least perhaps, that uh, we had skinheads and... Yeah. Crazies who were racist and the rest were normal. Yeah, everybody else is fine. But it's it has like of course then I understand that a lot of people think like that. And of course mm. you have like some of the most extreme cases in the in that field and all of this. But for us that just live in the everyday life and so on, it I'm not super worried by the skinheads I'm gonna meet in uh, you know, mm. Granaluka or 
because that's the thing to notice is like the radicalization of people mm. and radicalization of habits and everyday life and like small mm. discussions and so on. Mm. But then it's like trying to understand who is responsible for that because it's mm. of course easy to say it's a structural issue, blah, 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 and never point at anybody as mm. if the structure was um, yeah. run by like air or something. It comes of itself. Yeah, but there are people that are in this country, of course, responsible. I mean, lots of them we elect, for example. Mm. So mm. Uh, they are like uh, levels of responsibilities, I think, that are very important to just acknowledge and all of this and systems of power and all of this and who is in this system. So it was interesting to just research that and then thought because... We know that, of course, like this milieu that are really reactionary and so on, they love privacy. Privacy is their main thing. Yeah. And, you know, this is also a very American thing, you know, mm. no trespassing, all of these things, these ideas of like... Uh, and, of course, rich people's privacy is more important than poor people's privacy, as we know. And it was also very interesting for us to think, because for me, what changes is your everyday life. You know, like, of course, it's scary to have, you know, none that is matching the streets and so on. That's like the visible part in a way, but mm-hmm. it does affect your... Like there are things happening in your everyday life. So it almost feels like these people are in your living room all the time or like really close to you all the time, you know. So this invasion of privacy, I think, was an interesting um, subject even that came up that we didn't get the chance to talk about ourselves. Mm. But because we were filming their houses, so it became a very big subject. But actually, nobody ever asked about poor people's privacy or, you know. Minorities' privacy, mm-hmm. you know, when you when everything you see in the media is always about how Somali people are, you know, like this and that, and uh, problems in their culture. Like, it's always, but nobody talks about their privacy. That's not a topic. Mm-hmm. But rich people, yes, very important topic of to talk about privacy. So that was nice. But so that's the, the work is about that. The intention was to have like this sort of pilgrimage in Oslo, in which ended up being the west side of Oslo for yeah. reasons we can come back to later mm-hmm. and film the houses of these people. So first there was a lot of research on who is connecting to whom and blah, 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 blah and lots of articles being read and stuff because all of this is public information, yeah. of course. So it was just to connect all the dots. And we, we also got lots of, lots of help from Katie Lund, who knows Oslo West very well. Because he's a former judge or is he? Former Supreme Court judge. And he's a lawyer still. Yeah. yeah. And he lives in the west side of Oslo, and he's, I would not say old, but he's from an advanced uh, age. Knows quite well his city and his mm. country and everything. So the idea was to go and film their houses, but then tell lots of the stories about them, but also about Algeria, about colonial history, mm. about civilians, about Rojava. So you have all of these stories being intertwined. Mm. So it's these personal stories of you mm. and Sarah and then acting out like the situation as you were exploring these mm. right-wing think yeah. tanks and who's yeah. behind this and who's... Yeah, the uh, think tanks, the politicians, of course, first, and the think tanks and then the um, financial people giving money, basically. Mm. So the big fortunes and so on. Mm. And then you had at the end the military that is all linked to the NATO milieu. Mm. So you had Totenberg and yeah, lots of NATO-related people, military people, because while we were showing the play, it was also the biggest uh, NATO action in Norway uh, rehearsal. So it was the biggest uh, in history of Norway. Or mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was uh, yeah, it was interesting. So you see basically you, what you see on stage is you have a big screen with you see the houses of people. You don't really know. I mean, it's very hard to know. Even if you're from Oslo, it's hard to really know where it is, I would say. Yeah. It's, so it's part of the, the scenography and it's a lot of green elements in the mm. images as well because it's often like houses with 
big gardens and beautiful trees and so on. And then we will have trees on stage as well mm-hmm. and leaves and so on. So you will also play on this idea of camouflage and... Mm. Because uh, this part of the play, you and Pia, you're kind of camping outside or nearby Sarah. these houses and... Yeah, sleeping inside the bush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, kind of trying to, and I guess, observe those people who have a very high need of privacy, who are mm. trying to define how the lives of other people should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's basically trying to look back. Yeah. But with very small means, of course, like this troubadour, you know, with violin and... Harmonium. There's Indian, uh, it looks like an accordion a little bit, mm. but it's played like this. So, yeah, it's like mimicking a little bit this idea of hiding and playing music and being mm. this sort of... Yeah, the troubadour is a nice image, I think, mm. because mm. it is a little bit like this. It's very light. We had uh, been compared at some point by Afton Poston, which is this conservative newspaper with uh, the Red Army and guerrilla mm. theater and so on but it's very far from that actually yeah yeah stylistically not very similar at all really <laughs> how does the music play in pierre asked me can you perform on stage as well and i really like the idea i thought mm. it would be nice mm. to not only have music as like a background but also perform live mm. and i thought it would be really nice to expose the audience to like things that are a little bit more experimental mm-hmm. uh, of course as i love yes uh, <laughs> as you know and then also mix this kind of experimental noise elements with Kurdish traditional music, which is what we do basically. And uh, yeah, and then we did some stuff like pre-recorded and then some are performed live. And a lot is mixed as well and everything. But it's also also this image of like the violin, the harmonium, all these two women with their instruments and being outside of the houses and looking back and hiding kind mm. of in a bush and also to create an image. Mm. And also what I always love with the violin that is like when you play like acoustically and so on, it's also kind of interesting to bring in like very kind of more noise elements mm. as an image, you know, with the violin being representing what, what it represents and everything. I think very important, at least for me to like take it as an opportunity to, to do that also. Because mm. it's kind of like a high culture object. Yeah, and, uh, super high culture, like the most... How should I say? You know what I mean? Like, it's more the way it's perceived. Mm. I mean, it's the symbol of everything. You yeah, want to. Of classical music, anyway. Yeah. yeah. And it's very competitive milieu. It's mm. this everything. It's all about being the best. Mm-hmm. And that ties interesting in John Burge as well, talking about how old systems of class and culture yeah. tie into contemporary exactly, yeah. ideas. And, of, uh, yeah. and these things, is not, it's not people will notice per se, but it will trigger. They mm. will be like... Because we all grew up with this hierarchy of mm-hmm. things. It's not like nothing, nothing new, and uh, but it's so it's this unconscious uh, way of it's then. But then it becomes it's very interesting when you fuck up a little bit all these categories and mm-hmm. you know play a little bit with that. And I always love like um, I know that uh, the, my character in a way, which is myself on stage, is perceived maybe a little bit careless and a little bit like. A little bit rude, a little bit like this, but it's kind of, it's also nice with these different images, how people perceive things and mm. the violin comes in and it's like this fake birds and it's la la la, and it's this aggression at the same time. Mm. Yeah, it's so many elements. So I think it's a quite complex play, I would say, and quite rich as well. Yeah. And, and that comes with this thing of not compromising with each story in a way, just really trying to bring in like as much as it's needed for having something relevant mm. at all to say about each different subject. 
Yeah, so you have the houses and then it's a lot about the, each different individuals mm. in a way and how they relate to each other. And then you have Ketilun story with the Lun Commission, mm. which was this illegal civilians by the state for political movements in the left and so on. Yeah, he led the uh, examination into that. Yeah, it was called the Lune Commission, so it had his its name, but it's uh, also like during the whole Cold War time. Mm. So it was like a um, quite thorough investigation mm. and very important, like, how should I say, like, I think it was on some of the biggest scandal in a way yeah. like, in that, that time, and it, it's really present still in people's memory, mm. I think, and also when we talk about surveillance today, because a lot of the things that were done at that time are now legal, and mm-hmm. it's, it's also this discussion on how what this war on terror is allowing us to do mm. to our own population, and how do we see our so-called own population? Is there Are we all, like, on the same... Is it the same law for everybody, mm. or is there actually, like, differences based on maybe ethnicity or maybe religion or mm. maybe something. Mm. I mean, Ketil, he's extremely, he's 80 years old now, but he's, all his life he's been very thorough in keeping the kind of criticism of uh, yeah. of the state and and the way things work and so on. So he's also, I think, for PSD and all of this, a little bit legendary figure and a yeah. philosopher people as well. So it's mm. really nice to have like this sort of legend guy on stage. <laughs> yeah, and he, he shows up in the play as a, a random person that you meet while you're camping outside these houses. Yeah. And you start a conversation about, um, I guess, laws and mm. society. Yeah, we, we start a conversation about how is it legal to film the houses or not. Mm. And is so there is a moment where in the play he's commenting on mm. what we're doing in mm. a way and he says it's legal. Mm. The only thing you cannot do is to film people. Mm. And go in their, like, trespass in yeah, their land. And their and so spaces, yeah. So it's a lot of discussions about law, yeah. And I guess the play is a lot about what is legal and legitimate. Mm. Because you have, of course, then the story of the colonial history, the war of independence, mm. all of these things. And, uh, yeah, it kind of gives different perspectives also. I think Ali's text is kind of the text that is binding everything together as well. Mm. Because also he's a ghost, so there's something with the ghost that always makes it like as a binding element because mm. there's something between, you know, knowing the past and foreseeing the future and like being this kind of time traveler mm. in a way in between the different scenes. And also when he explains what colonization is, mm. I think that's really when you understand like all the mechanisms of all of these previous things we were talking about. And I think this text, I think, is some of the most important in the play, I think, mm. that really, like, this understanding of what colonization is, actually, like, for people's bodies and lives. And it's really interesting what happens in the play at that moment because mm. it's kind of shifting. It's shifting in many places, but this is, like, even a mm. bigger, I feel, at least. What are some of the points that he uh, brings up in that speech? No, I think you know, we would have to read the text and, and all of this, but it's uh, also something about, which was, was one of the very controversial points of Hans Fanon that made him very hated for a long time by especially French intellectuals and so on, but like how violence can actually have an emancipatory mm. effect, which is not a call for violence and is not a, a romanticization of violence, is not like saying I, we like violence, it's not none of these. He's actually studying the mental health of people because it's he's a doctor and he's saying, well, it appears as if violence is actually making people healthy again mentally. Hmm. This thing of like taking your, the arms yourself and then fighting and all of this stuff, fighting hmm. for your life and not accepting this constant humiliation and so on every hmm. day. Hmm. 
this part of Fanon that has been uh, also mis very misunderstood as like this call for violence and this kind of romanticization and so on. But that's some of the things that are in the text of my father. But I don't think it's perceived negatively by the audience because it doesn't feel like that. It's just this moment of re this realization mm. because it's very clear also. Because colonization is like this death, like constant death of every, you know, everything is being removed. Mm -hmm. So when you just say that when we fight, when we started to fight against that, we started to breathe again. It's not something controversial to say that, I think. Mm -hmm. I should have brought the text and everything, <laughs> but uh, I didn't. So people will have to see it. And that role also plays kind of like a, a meta role similar to Kete Lund mm. in that he presents himself as an actor who's playing your yeah. father in the play. Mm. And he talks a bit about that aspect as well in terms of interpretation. Mm. There's a lot of those elements in the play in terms of what's yeah, real and what's acted. Yeah, it kind of destabilizes a little bit. It shakes a little bit the play like is this... Mm. But it's very nice. I love when he comes on in the play and he says, my name is Ali, but today mm. my name is Ali Benamar. And I'm actually from Iran, but you know, I, l mm. I love this moment. It breaks a little bit. Like It's nice because it doesn't become so static, I think, with mm. the, this kind of reality-based characters. Kind of also invites the spectators to start thinking about mm. what you're seeing and the relationship between what's on stage, what's real, and it's kind of central art. to the yeah, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> and that's very central to the um, underlying themes. Mm. So. Absolutely, so that works really well. Um, yeah, so you you had your initial run in November 2018, and it started to come some controversy around the play, mm. and that kind of escalated to an extraordinary degree and became a, a big discussion in the media and led to some extraordinary events <laughs> quite unprecedented, at least here. And kind of unpleasant as well, which fits very well the theme of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I want that's to talk about it. It's an unpleasant movie uh, in itself. Yeah. yeah, it could be an unpleasant movie, yeah. <laughs> the controversy, as it was picked up later on, we can talk about the origins, but mm. it had, had to do with this filming of the, of the, the houses. houses, which is a facade where you don't see any people. And no. it's kind of the image that you might see in um, Google. Like a, yeah, Google or a part of the news. Yeah, yeah. you will um, see more in the news than what we were showing. Yeah, and you don't say anything about the address or location no, no. or anything. But this was kind of picked up as a transgression. And that's how it was presented. As yeah, a first picked up as being illegal, even though we have Ketilun, which is kind of the mm. law. I mean, you can't really find anybody else in this country that will represent the law better than him. In it's this a, specific field as well. Uh. In this specific field, <laughs> exactly, very specific. And so he's on stage and says it's not illegal, but still there would be like this kind of speculation mm. on basically saying that what we're doing is illegal mm. and we, we're like a threat and all of these things. So what happened is basically, I mean, first it was Senekunst that talked about the play, which is like art papers were talking about the play. Yeah. So it was like, la, la, la. And, and then that was quite a neutral... Uh, it was like, yeah, it was like, I think he said something like, it's an important play, but it was in general very positive, but he was also saying like things like, it's not completely finished yet, maybe, okay. or, you know, things like that. Based on the premiere then? Based or? on the premiere. Yeah. And I mean, the premiere was, I mean, I was like walking like a robot and shaking <laughs> on the floor. I was like, really? So it wasn't completely, f emotionally not finished at mm. all, in a way. But anyway, it was like a normal, like, art critic and so on. And then it was the art critic from Afton Post. And uh, then it became interesting. It was a very unusual critique because, okay, he says, I come with lots of prejudices, 
because I know these people are like uh, these leftists and so on. He says basically something like that. It's really interesting to read that critique, actually. Hmm. And I stand somewhere else. It's very rare as an art critic that you will go in an exhibition or a theater or concert and be like, mm -hmm. by the way, I'm like right wing and they are leftist, you know. It's really rare that you will have this sort of, that a journalist will feel like he or she has to define their political position in relation to an artwork. Mm -hmm. So for me, I would have loved to hear more about what made him feel that he had to define his own position in relation mm -hmm. to what he perceived as ours, because he describes us as this leftist radicals guerrilla theater. Mm -hmm. And he says in one hand, it's a fascinating play. He actually writes that. Mm -hmm. But he also says that it's very scary and if we would be filming his house, he will have called the police and mm. it's a bit like this red army, blah, blah, blah. And he says that we are sneak filming. Uh, hidden cameras. Yeah, hidden um, camera, like we're filming without... But that's not true also. It's the middle of the day, we go like with the tripod and the camera mm. and the dog and we're like this big group of, you know. Yeah. It's like this is the further away you can get from hidden. Yeah, or like, your presence is obvious in there. It's very yeah. obvious. And so he, but he makes this picture of mm. us, you know, being this guerrilla, radical left, mm. la 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 la, red army, you know, sneak filming. So he's obviously threatened by the idea of someone he's observing. threatened by the idea yeah. of someone that will be out there and film a house. Mm. But then he also says fascinating play and blah, blah, blah. So it also says lots of interest other things are mm. not necessarily interesting, but like positive and so on. But it's like it's so interesting to see like how kind of he gets completely like taken away by um, it just goes a bit too far. But again, it's an art critic. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a political, you know what I mean? It's not in that section of politics or something. Mm -hmm. It's still in the art section. So you would still think, I mean, I thought the review was interesting because it just like reveals so much of himself mm -hmm. in a way. And that was very new for me to see something like that. But then what happens is that, of course, this newspaper is mostly like we can say conservative. One of the largest newspapers yeah. in Norway. Yeah. One of the largest paper in Norway, kind of conservative, but also just very mainstream, we can say. Yeah. So what happens like on the Saturday, Saturday morning, all of these extreme right people, they wake up in the morning and they read this paper as well because mm. they are politicians and established people, right? The establishment. And then they open the newspaper and what do they see? That some red army, radical left guerrilla theater had been outside of their house, hidden in the bushes, mm. filming, uh, la la, all of this stuff. And then immediately it goes like, it's not even a snowball at that point, it's like an avalanche, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like immediate avalanche, you know? <laughs> And it's like all the extreme right blocks coming in and calling extreme right politicians that are in government. And mm. these politicians saying, we're going to discuss it, a way of saying like, we're going to pass it on like a little bit above, mm. like in the hierarchy. And they say we're dangerous and we're a threat mm. against democracy and blah, blah, blah. And it, it goes on like this for quite some time. Does this start while the play's running or does it come more it starts, afterwards? Uh, no, it's, it's like the second day or something. Second day. It starts already. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because it's like the premiere and mm. then the day after the premiere comes out after the Boston yep. thing. And then I think it's a Friday, but it's online and then it comes on the Saturday printed edition. So it's like two days after the premiere and mm -hmm. then comes the Human Rights Service. I remember very well it was a Saturday. It was at the restaurant or like in this, you know, small restaurant in Grönland in mm. the east of Oslo and in this Chinese place. And I was eating with friends and my boyfriend and so on and then I start seeing this thing on human rights service mm. and it's like it was two articles in one day mm. and they had been calling around people and blah 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 and then the day after I think comes this woman that 
I had never seen before. She was, shows up for this the She shows play. up to see the play and mm. first and she's standing and she's on the side kind of but like a little bit side middle of where the audience is and mm. she's standing and she's first I thought she was just taking pictures but then I realized she's filming and I was still performing and I, I don't want to like stop because I'm thinking the other people are here to see the play. So I tried to go on and then the technicians could not move because they were working. I mean, obviously. So and then at some point in the play, I go out just to pick up something backstage. And then I send a text to the reception and ask people to yeah. go on stop. I just got like panic a little bit. She was filming the play, which is OK. I mean, it's first it's not very legal, but it's like OK in a way. But then she started to film the audience. That I thought was super scary. Yeah. Because it's like, why? Where would you film the audience? And is it, who are you going to show it to? Are you filming live? I mean, mm-hmm. it's so many things, you know. And then so Black Box comes in and asks her to stop and she doesn't want. And she was also with a friend who was also filming I saw. Right. I was a bit like automatic mode at that point. And I removed a lot of the stuff that were a little bit rude. Mm. For some reason, I just removed it from yeah. the text because I felt like... I felt a little bit scared, yeah. but it wasn't like very important thing. It was just like funny stuff, you know, like satire in a way, you know, mm. I, I just felt like it wasn't the moment somehow. And uh, so then she leaves and makes all these, you know, but we keep on performing. And then uh, some friends of mine had taken pictures and so on. And then they sent me a message the day after so the same night that it was the wife of the justice minister. And then I was like, oh, my God, that, that's it. We're so <laughs> fucked. Now it's going to start like lots of shit. And I mean, what the fuck? It was just so crazy. At that point, we knew like this is going to be fucking crazy because it's very weird that someone at that level, because the justice minister is like basically like some of the most powerful person in the country, that the family of a person so powerful would allow themselves to do stuff like that just shows already a level of, I don't know how to say it, but like you just don't do these kind of things in general. You avoid, like if you're actually just smart, mm. you just avoid any form of criticism, you just erase it by your silence. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So just this showed like a little bit of kind of craziness, like nothing that crazy, like bad, like she's not like this schizophrenic kind of, but it's more this thing of like this vulnerability of not allowing, you know, criticism to happen, not mm-hmm. wanting to allow that to happen, mm-hmm. you know? Being like so sensitive to any form of little... As I said, like troubadour people playing, like, come on, seriously, this is not like the worst critique you can get. I mean, of course, we reveal a lot of their shit, but, you know, it's also like, come on, this is come from papers that we have read. It's public information. It's totally yeah. public information. It's nothing yeah. new. We yeah. just collect the stuff together yeah. and present it in a kind of artistic way and we combine stories and so on. But it's just this reaction yeah. like this, it made it like come in, you know, paf. I come in and I'm going to film you, you know, like it's very strange coming from like people in power in government. It's like, wow. Did she publish the video she filmed? No, but I think what she did is that she gave it to Human Rights Service, which is this think tank that we talk about also in the play. And then at that point, there would be one article almost every day on Human Rights Service. So this extreme right think tank that is very close to FFP. Mm-hmm. They will be every day. They will report on ways of seeing. They even published parts of the text that they, I think, transcribed from her video, because some of the transcriptions were not right. Mm. It's very possible they were transcribing from her video because also she left at some point. Mm-hmm. She stayed for at least an hour or something, forty-five okay, okay. minutes. So it was like a long time. She was filming the entire hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you see that they don't have the whole play. Mm. So it also shows that obviously she gave the video to them, I mm. think. Mm-hmm. That, and now I'm just speculating. 
But they spend lots of time working on that. I mean, they really like transcribing this whole thing mm. is like a lot of work. So yeah, I'm yeah. a little bit impressed. <laughs> I'm thinking like, in a way, they followed the play more seriously than lots of other journalists, mm. you know. Every day they would publish something about us. And so it generated a lot of hate, of course. But then what happened is that this other politician who is in Stotting, uh, he actually posted something on Facebook accusing my colleague Sarah Baban to like promote hate against Norwegians and this is a thank you you get for having refugees in Norway because she came as a refugee as a child and there she got lots of shit like death threats and stuff mm. because he put out her name and you know everything and he's a top politician mm-hmm. in FRP so immediately I like, get like thousands mm-hmm. of likes and you know and he says that she on her Facebook profile she has she has this picture of herself posing with a, a machine gun mm. And all of these things, and it's like a drawing of like this Rojava person, or like Rojava soldier, a uh, woman. What, what's that? Rojava, like from the Kurdish from the uh, revolutionary women, but it's like a drawing, and it's not her. Mm. It's very obvious that it's just a drawing. But he's playing on this ambiguity because he also says we are lurking in the bushes, you mm. know, and all. And so people freak out, and we become these terrorists, and so so they worked very well on kind of making this image of us as being so with the help of the kind of more mainstream right, like unwanted help or something we can mm. say. But then you see the links. It's not, as I was saying earlier, like these prejudices. It's not just the extreme right or something. It is there in the mainstream media, of course. So it's like when someone like that from this paper goes out without thinking that maybe what would be the consequences of that if I say that these two women that have an Arabic something name Hmm. are lurking around the bushes and there's a bit like Red Army. What could happen, you know? Hmm. The level of prejudice is so anchored that people don't even think about that, you know? So it's like, of course he didn't want things like that to happen but the level of radicalization is so intense that you know it's really interesting at that uh, point but that's uh, that's just the first week hmm. all of this happen and uh, we're still performing and it becomes clear i mean we reveal the fact that she had been filming mm-hmm. the play because it's just unacceptable that you know family of people in power will come in and you know basically threaten artists and so on and then she writes this chronicle the day after we've done performing the play Hmm. saying that we are dangerous that we're lurking around the bushes and filming the bedroom window and there she is laying every night next to her husband that we Hmm. call a nazi which we don't of course and so she deepens the picture that Hmm. boston and human rights service started and she's, of course, like this poor woman, you know, this housewife, and she's uh, she's scared, and she's scared for her children. So it sounds like they have these small kids at home, you know, but their kids is like, the youngest is my age or something, so hmm. their 30s. Mm-hmm. So it's very far from reality, but it's very... Um, very well done as PR. She paints an effective picture. Yeah, and her husband being probably the biggest PR person in Norway, mm. I'm not surprised, of course, that the PR is good. Mm. And then, of course, what happened after, because I had a small interview in Morgenbladder where I said that I'm laughing at them and I don't care and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they are the ones that are dangerous and so on, which I still think is true. And after that point, terrorist attacks against her husband and so on. Yeah, because a series of events around their private home. Yeah. With some tagging of the word racist misspelt on the wall. And there's uh, some attempts uh, at causing minor fires in the garbage. Yeah, there was also this attempt of exploding the car by putting this thread... That was the first one with the with the tagging as well and the swastika that was badly made as well. Mm. And racist that was misspelled and it actually said racist. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. 
And there at that point, I'm thinking, I remember because I was driving, was going to pick up the lambs for mm. the solstice. <laughs> mm. And it was a snowstorm and everything. And I was with a friend and then we take a break because it was so much snow and so much wind. And then he sees on his phone, it's like all of these messages. It's like this news thing because it's like breaking news, you know, mm. terrorist attempt, attack, blah, 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 because it was called like that at the beginning, yep. you know. And they don't make the link with the play. Mm. But then comes this politician that was exposing my friend, Christian Tubringida. He comes in and immediately makes the link. Mm. He said, it's, it's because of that play. We, we said it from the beginning. They are dangerous people and they are inspiring. La, 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 and uh, Kind of uh, implicating the people behind the play as of perhaps having done it, not saying having it Having done it or have inspired terrorism, yeah. basically, which yeah. is quite heavy yeah. uh, allegations, we can say. Hmm. And also the TV, like the main channel, like just going, like it's like if CNN would just, or the BBC would just take this comments from this extreme right politician mm. and just take it as a headline the day yeah. after as like black box case and you know one thing is of course like the involvement of the extreme right milieu that was really pissed off at the play because we were exposing them and so on and then it's like the mainstream media just completely going in into their narrative mm. and accepting it without any form of criticality mm-hmm. whatsoever mm-hmm. and just completely like surfing on that with several months Making, taking it at face value. Yeah. yeah, and making any form of solidarity impossible because mm. it's like, what are you going to say? Okay, your work is inspiring terrorism. You know what I mean? Like, it's very hard for any artist or institution to like be like supportive of that. So you can only be like, I hope they didn't support, <laughs> uh, I hope they didn't inspire. You know, like, you can only be, like, it's just, it can only be ridiculous. Any mm. form of support can only be ridiculous. In a way, at the same time, I feel like the milieu, the art milieu should be much better. Like, immediately going in and deconstructing the narrative mm-hmm. and unpacking that and be very firm. Yeah. And be like, no, we refuse this kind of allegations. I'm sorry. Yeah. We don't even, we don't know anything. There is nothing that proves anything mm-hmm. linked to the play. Well, it's fair to say that didn't happen. Rather, it escalated in the uh, public sphere as a dangerous potential event of you know left-wing uh, yeah. extremism or something yeah, yeah. And the culture elite something between the radical left and the culture elite which is if people will know it's not at all the same no no it's <laughs> so two very different things two very different things but uh yeah and then there was uh, proposals from the extreme right party in oslo mm. to remove funds to the theater and also yeah. And controlling what kind of art should be able to get money. Yeah, because if you get money from the state, then Mm. you should not do stuff like that. Mm. So it's this idea of loyalty. You know, Mm -hmm. if you get public money, you should be loyal to, which is kind of, it's fine as an idea. I mean, okay, let's unpack that. Mm. There used to exist these laws before. Mm -hmm. That's a long time ago, but it used to exist. It's like, I don't know, until maybe like 19th century or something. I guess, you know, I mean, these laws existed Mm. before. It's not like something new, but it's like, it's very authoritarian, of course. Yeah. You know, and there is a reason why we don't want those laws to to be there. And I understand that people can think, yeah, art should, there should be some limits and blah, blah, blah. And these things we can discuss every day. Like, we should discuss all of these things all the time and criticize and, you know. I mean, but laws like that were implemented in Russia very recently. So a friend of mine told me that living there and said that uh, when this incident happened with our play, she said, oh, yeah, they just did it now in Russia, Mm. (laughs) just like for information, you know. So and probably not the only country. I mean, uh, Mm. I guess it's a lot of places, uh, basically authoritarian regimes and so on. 
No, so it was interesting because then when we when we performed, the only place that invited us to perform the play again was this uh, Human International Documentary Film Festival. Yeah. So there we performed in March, the year after, in 2019. And at that point, it had been several months that this Tommy Calvara and his wife were having all these strange threats and strange events were happening at their house. But they had like full support from the government and they were protected by the PST and there was a lot of things, of course, to protect their make sure they were safe. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea. I mean, we'd never been in... No police contacted us at no point. Uh, there no. was nothing. Like, in the papers, it said that we were, like, suspected and stuff like that as being, like, inspiring something. And mm. the, the wife of the justice minister also had, had melted us, like, um, yeah, uh, made these things against us at the police, but nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So mm. we never got contacted. Then we got contacted by the secret police in March sometimes mm. after showing the play. And then... It was more as um, they said they were interviewing me and as I guess they said the same to Pia and to Sarah mm. as more like as a witness okay. of something. Witness of what? Of what we will have, I will have, the way I have had experienced how the wife of the justice minister was oh. behaving and mm. things, how, what was my perception of the whole thing. Mm. And what was that like? It was really cool because uh, it, that felt like really like in a movie thing. <laughs> And I love, I mean, I'm very interested by all of this uh, secrecy and, you know, all of this. I think it's super interesting. So it was a bit cool to, like, go in the, their office. But then it wasn't as spectacular as I just, I imagined, like, something a bit more, <laughs> you know, a little bit more crazy or something. Yeah. But it was just very, it was just an office. Yeah. So I was a bit disappointed by the style. I think they should have dramatized it more yeah. just for the experience, you know. In the meanwhile, what happened is that, they had revealed that um, the main suspect of all of these actions was the wife of the justice minister, Laila yeah. Bertausen. So it just became like, what? Like, and the day before the secret police went out to announce the result of their research, the prime minister criticized us publicly, saying that we were making the life of politicians more difficult mm. and that we should not speculate on who has made the attacks because we don't know anything yet. And the thing is that it was very clear. The only thing that Pia said is that it's very clear that it's fake attacks. I mean, mm. you don't need to be very smart to notice that there's something wrong. Yeah, I, I remember my own thoughts when I first saw this misspelled Norwegian word racist. It's so clearly coded as a, as a foreigner. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah. It's not a complicated word. It's so weird. It's not as if I knew at that point, but I just thought about it. That doesn't seem strange. right. Yeah. And then all of these attacks are only happening to this specific property, these specific people. It's a bit suspicious. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit suspicious. Yeah. No, it was just completely ridiculous. And I was just hoping that they would not plant any evidence against us because that's like next level, of course. You know, that's when it gets really bad. But mm. like at that point, I was like, okay, this looks very amateurish. Mm. This is very strange. It's too badly made. Like, what the fuck is this? Like, can they even do like things professionally? Like, if you, <laughs> it was very surprising for me, like the, the level of amateurism. Yeah. And I was like, it was so funny that even though the level was super amateurish, the media still was pretending as like they were still playing the game as if mm -hmm. there was this crazy terrorist threat of some sort. And mm -hmm. uh, we were these horrible theater people that had done all these horrible allegations. And then, you know, our play was just this uh, propaganda play and, you know, it's a conspiration theories. Mm. And it was just completely wrong. And even people in the left like going out against us, like this guy in MDG. He even wrote about FFP as how to defeat them and so on. Mm. But anyway, he's quite respected in the left in a way. And But I mean, he's just proved he wasn't in the left, of course, by writing mm. against us. 
he hadn't seen the play. Mm. Because that was also like, it became this kind of popular thing of, well, we haven't seen the play, but let's comment on it anyway. Mm, yeah. I guess it's typical of this sort of situation. Most of the people haven't actually seen the play. Yeah, but then you can mm. ask to see it. You can ask to have a video. You can ask mm. to have a transcript. You can have... Also, you can just shut up. Like, if you don't haven't mm. seen the play and there's something, so many grave allegations, you might as well just shut up because mm. that just sounds a little bit too crazy if you're not completely stupid, mm. I think. But the main thing was just to go... Everybody was going in with their little two cents of comment, you know, mm-hmm. on us. And I think it just shows like complete lack of solidarity from the culture scene. That's one thing, but also complete kind of embedded form of racism. That is like, it's okay. It's just these two brown women on stage. Like, you know, for lots of the people, it was like, we don't need to be solidaric with them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when this guy came out with his fucking article against us Mm -hmm. and he hadn't seen the play, Mm -hmm. I was like, "Ah, and now we wonder why the left is not winning anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, really? Is that the people that supposed to like revolutionize anything? It's like, come on. You can't even recognize propaganda when you see it and you're supposed mm-hmm. to be an expert in like, you know. It's very disturbing. That's that was a disturbing part. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the title as well when you like you start seeing like it revealed a lot of the which state we were in. Mm-hmm. You know? So it was like this kind of this uh, word games on the gaze and looking and looking back and all of these things. It became even more like it was so clear, you know, in a way. And and some people say that we polarize the debate, but I don't think it's true. I think mm. what happened is that it made things visible mm. and it was very uncomfortable. Mm. It was very uncomfortable. The play was uncomfortable, but also it revealed what happened afterwards, revealed stuff that were just horrible, like just impossible to, you know. And none of these people that went out against apologized or anything, no. you know? No, it seems that we're in an age where people just do not yeah, apologize. Do not apologize. <laughs> it's no longer or, part or of Or had like a Facebook post with like, just hoping, you know. Mm. But this is bullshit. Like, hello. No, you go out in the papers mm. like this against us in Vege or something, the most read papers in Norway. Mm. Then you go out and apologize in the papers the same mm. way you accuse people. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, that would be the minimum, I would say. It's just for yourself. I'm thinking, how can you live with yourself and just not, not doing it? <laughs> well, the idea of personal responsibility in this sense is kind of wiped out a bit. Completely wiped mm. out. And then when she was caught and like it was revealed that it was her that was the main suspect and everybody was like, oh yeah, you know, we supported you all the time and it became this big like hallelujah, like, uh, you know, yes, we won, like as if it was like this collective victory or something. But it was like, sorry guys. Yeah. <laughs> and the interesting you know? was that in the aftermath of this, then you started to get some more, you know, interesting reviews trying to look at the play mm-hmm. in the context and trying Finally, to break down. Finally, then it was like, yeah, yeah, so it was an eye-opener. Mm. And that was interesting, very interesting. And even Enerco, like, I mean, not Enerco, Enerco, but like art critics that wrote for Enerco, mm. <laughs> went to Tromsø and really looked at the play. Mm. It was very nice. And, mm. um, and it continued. And also the discussions became more careful. Because the media had fucked up so much yeah. that it became like complete horror in a way for them to just, you know. So when it was announced that there was going to be a court case, it was also like more in-depth discussions, I think. Mm. So I hope that the play and the meta play will continue to bring important discussions into the audience, into yeah. the public, into the audience and the meta audience, we can say. Well, uh, that seems very likely to me. Because as you mentioned, she has a court case against her sometime in the autumn. It's supposed to start in September. Let's hope there is no delays with the present situation, mm. coronavirus and so on. Mm. But for the moment, it's maintained, uh, I think. And uh, we might be called in as witnesses. Mm. 
but I don't think it would be necessary because they have so many witnesses against her mm. anyway. Apparently there's recorded footage because that was yeah. one of the things how yeah. she was uh, revealed was that yes. they have cameras around the area where they live and she was filmed. Yeah, because they got the best protection you can have in the country mm. when you're being threatened as a politician. So, mm. of course, they they have, I imagine, lots of footages of lots of things. Mm. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting because I think for the secret police, I think it's been very draining process because they were there to protect them and then it became like... The people being protected that were the ones... I mean, it's just crazy. And the amount of resources being spent mm. in that is just like insane. It's and Tormek Ilvara, he had to leave his post. He had to resign. And it became this sort of this family tragedy. It was mm. as how it was sold to the public by the press, which was mm. like, just come on. That's just a fucking scandal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just completely scandal. like yeah. scandalous. So he had to resign, but he was warmly thanked by the prime minister for his service to the nation and blah, 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 blah. And uh, it was just completely like a farce. Mm. Like the, it was the most grotesque thing I've seen on TV. Mm. But then it was very good because we, what we have to understand is that each time they do stuff like that, it's just very good because it just keeps on revealing things, you know. No, so he left and then they went to Florida to take some time off. And then he came back and then he went back to his previous job, which is like being this senior advisor for the biggest PR lobby company in the country. So life is good. Hmm. Aside from the personal tragedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he supports his wife and, you know, believes she's completely innocent. And uh, Yeah, of course, one can only speculate, but it seems very strange that he wouldn't have known anything. Seems very, very like, strange. Hello. Or then their marriage is a complete failure. I mean, I would. Yeah. I mean, that's she, just not. She I must be know. some covert ninja or something. <laughs> it's very strange. But I mean, I'm not like feeling sorry or anything. I'm just thinking like, for me, because I think the media have used her also a mm. lot, yeah. and used this image that she wanted. She wanted to portray herself as this like housewife with her children and fragile and all these things. But her crimes were clearly racist, trying to incriminate like foreigners and stuff like that with the misspelling. It was very obvious, like red flags in that story. Mm. So yeah, okay, she's maybe a housewife. I don't know. Should I feel sorry for her because of that? Mm. Or no, I don't think so. I think she's responsible for her actions. And Absolutely. And mm. I think it's very, very strange that the justice minister will also go after us publicly, saying that we're morally corrupt and yeah. stuff like that. When you're like, you're the fucking justice minister, you yeah. know? He says that he's not scared by the attacks and stuff. He seems very fine and confident that mm. it's, that he will be fine. But he still spends his time as a justice meter to actually go after us, yeah. saying we're morally corrupt. And he quotes me as like, you know, he goes actually with personally against us. And that's like, as a justice minister, I would say like, if that's not a scandal, I don't know what it is. So let's just assume he didn't mm. know anything, mm. let's say. But already at that point, December 2018, the justice minister going personally after artists mm. for a play he hasn't seen, for a play he doesn't know anything about that, yes, criticizes him, but like not a very extensive way. Like actually, I'm, most of it in the text I have about him, I'm quoting him. Mm. So if he doesn't agree, if he thinks this is conspiration theory, that's fine. But that's the stuff that he said. So maybe he's, I don't know. So because he did say we were just spreading conspiration theories. Mm. I mean, we're dangerous, we're spreading conspiration theories, we're morally corrupt. Mm. And then he quotes me as well, like, especially Hanan Benama, blah, 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 blah. He goes out against me because of that interview I had mm. where I say that I'm laughing at them and mm. they are the ones that are dangerous and so on. Mm. And that's like already that point, like two months, like a month after the opening of the play. Mm. That's where really he should early. have stopped immediately. Mm. When the justice meter goes personally after artists, mm. 
the prime minister should have gone in and said, this I don't accept. Mm. This is not okay, actually. Someone already at that point should have told him, no, you, got, you don't put that out. Yeah, he's really transgressing his role there. Yeah, completely, completely mm. out. I mean, this is also our justice minister. So he doesn't say that we are responsible for anything, blah, 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 but then he, he does this stuff. Mm. And he also, like, he repeats stuff that she has said that are false. It's like fake news. Mm. So it's like completely, I think it's very disturbing, this. So, mm. of course, we can talk, I mean, lots of the stuff that she did were really, because it was so spectacular, you know, like this fake stuff and faking up, like, also the fake threat letters where she's using also... Apparently, she used by interviews, like to make threat letters to send to. It was, what was this? Was this like a cutout? Uh, it's cutout, yeah. I mean, I've like seen only letters. one that was published by Human Rights Service, which yeah. is very funny because, again, the, the extreme rights think tank, as if someone had sent them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a picture and it's a blurred picture, but you can very see it's like cut out letters from a newspaper, like really classic. Like something out of Don Duck or something. Yeah. yeah. And then the other letters, I think, are different. Yeah. And then you have this new letter that comes after she was suspected of being you have the one that comes in june in 2019 hmm. by these people that supposedly like confessed to crimes oh, really? and it was this like letter that was like mixing norwegian and english and so on and it was like this broken region and it was really funny because it was so weird hmm. and then the newspapers asked linguists or like people working with language to analyze the letter asking you whether that was like a foreigner that didn't speak and they say, no, it's a fake. It's a Norwegian person trying to pretend they're not Norwegian. Mm. So they, it's like written black and white. It's so interesting. It's so funny. And it's so weird. And it's like, come on. And they're in Florida. And it's like, oh, I don't know what it is. And, you know, it can't be us that have sent it because we're in Florida. Completely like bizarre stuff. So Actually, I hadn't a, heard of that last one. That's no, pretty bad. No, because this one was like drop and it became so like obvious. That it was just, it oh. was so crazy that nobody talked about it. It was only Dag Bladder oh, really? that had access to it. And then it stopped there because I think it just became like, come on, this is too much. But, you know, it's just this thing with the misspells and, uh, you know, these things of targeting us personally. Mm. And I just mean also it's not just her. I mean, when her husband goes out also like this. Mm. And then you have a prime minister that thinks this is all fine. Mm. It's kind of a like weird second act to the play, in a sense. Uh, it kind of mirrors a lot of the things that you're talking about. Exactly. Uh, it mirrors the stuff we talk about happen in mm. reality because mm. it's lots of the parts with Katie Lund also where Sarah asked him, but is it the same for me? Like with my background, can that influence like the way I can be treated or, you know? And it's, it doesn't really answer, but it's like there is this uncertainty in the play. It talks about that in a way. And then mm. it happens in the real life. And the only people that were not completely corrupt, we can say, were PST, the secret police, mm. because they stayed quite thorough. Mm. And when they had to go after the wife of their boss, they did actually, because he was their boss. Mm. So imagine that. It's weird. That's weird. <laughs> it must have been quite nice for them also, like a little bit. <laughs> the dream, you know. <laughs> Isn't it kind of nice? Yeah. Like it's, it has this emancipatory. Yeah. So I hope they enjoyed that part at least. And what's really funny now is that so it's going to be the court case and the secret police have asked us if they could show parts of the play in the court case. And then you get like this very weird like loop yeah, thing. Like, so do you have any personal reflections in the aftermath? I mean, you're still it's still touring. I mean, it's on a break it's now. Touring. But, uh, it's, it's on a break now because of global situation mm. with the coronavirus but it's still touring we have had several invitations mm. and we're also going to work on an um, international version yeah. so that non-Norwegian speaking audience can see it mm. and I think even though it talks about very Norwegian context I think it's very relatable 
Well, I think it translates well. Yeah, it really translates well to what happens in Europe and Western mm. countries and so on with this like rise of populism and nationalism that is very present in our lives and, you know, where and how minorities are treated. But also mm. I think it affects everybody's lives. That's why I think most people got like, it was kind of a difficult play also because it makes people think a lot about their own position and their own lives and stuff. No, so we hope uh, that uh, we can show the play as much as possible. Mm. And we're also working on the book, which will be released hopefully in the fall. Is that like uh, the text from the play? N Is no, it the screenplay? It's a or? collection of essays from mm. different people that kind of try to unpack the different perspectives of ah. the play. And um, we're also working on LP and okay. <laughs> we want to make a TV program. And sure. yeah, we, it's a lot of things that we want to do. Also like new platforms and new opportunities to huh? include new voices as well and kind of keep on working on all of these elements. Not try to just repeat the same the play in different formats, mm. but just actually make something new as an extension of the work mm. that mm. we have already done and stuff by inviting people in. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that's kind of the stuff that John Berger did as well with the TV series and the book and then exactly. continuing essays so, and stuff. So I, I'm very excited by that, actually. Mm. Um, the people that we have invited to be in the book are just really great people. So I, I think this is going to be great. Have, have you been in touch with a publisher? Or? Yes, it's called October Forlag. So yeah, they will publish. And now it's just a text to be received in June and then uh, some editing work and so on. And yes. Very exciting to see what that's like. The saga continues. Yes, the saga continues. Well, um, Hanan, as we like to do in this podcast, we ask people to come with some recommendations of other bits of art that they find well, relevant or interesting. Unpleasant, you said. Yeah, <laughs> ideally. <laughs> ideally unpleasant. So uh, what's your recommendation? I don't know if it's something you can still see today because I'm not sure if it's still open. But for me, some of the most unpleasant and amazing experience I had as an art piece was the Dream House from Lamonte Young and Mayan Zazila. Mm -hmm. And it's unpleasant in the sense that it's extremely challenging because it's like it has all of these pitches. It's like a, it's like a room and you go in and you lay down on the floor and... They have all of these lights and all of these tunes. Each time you move, hmm. it's like new pitches and new tunes that you hear. Okay, okay. So this is kind of like an installation? or Yeah, in a way. Like a total installation, we can say, because hmm. it's the whole space. Like hmm. the whole thing is, is the artwork. And um, it's very challenging because it's not something you're used to, obviously. And it's when they're with my partner and he could not stay like more than 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, he just said, like, I have to go. It's too much. Is it like overstimulating? Or? Yeah, in a way. And it's kind of like yeah, a little bit disturbing in a way. The way I approached it is that I felt like I had to stay there a very long time in order to get used to it. Hmm. So I think I stayed four hours. Okay, okay. And it's really amazing because you, you just roam around and each millimeter of movement is like changing stuff. And, and uh, this is a, a larger space? Or? Yeah, it's like an apartment actually. What's quite amazing is that if you try to just lay down and listen to it, it feels like you're falling asleep, but you're not. Mm. So it is this state a little bit before you fall asleep, you know, when mm -hmm. you go to bed. This state just before, but this continuous. So it's like mm. kind of waking all the time. It's like, it's really like special. That and sounds I, very interesting. 
There's lots of smart people that have written about it and mm. can explain it much better than me. Where did you see uh, it? I saw it in New York. New York it's, yeah. it's, in, it's in New York yeah. and it's a kind of permanent installation. And uh, But I'm not sure if it's still open today. They were discussing it already at that time and I saw it many years ago, but I kind of will always remember it at this very strange mix between the challenge and the kind of little bit difficult aspect mm. of like accepting this sounds to kind of fuck up a little bit with your mind and mm. everything. I think oh. for those people, it's, it's either you really hate it, like you just go out because you can't take it, mm. or you just take it in and then just work yourself through it somehow. You said it sounds, but are there like projected images? Or what no, what physically happens? Images. It's quite uh, warm in the room. It's completely pink. It has all of this... Um, I don't remember exactly, but it has all of these different lamps that is like pink and purple and stuff like that. Mm. And it's lots and lots of speakers, I guess. I don't remember I don't remember seeing them precisely, but it's like physically, it's just basically, I mean, you're, there is like this floor carpet thing and you're mm. just on the ground. Instinctively, like you just, you just like lay on the ground, but you can also walk around. Mm. So you can listen to it on very different levels as well. And those people will just lay down at some point because it's just like, and then move a little bit around and roll, actually like literally roll around. And everything shifts constantly, all the yeah, noises. It's, it's the, the position of your body that will shift the way you perceive the sounds. Oh yeah, it's, it's, I mean. is it tracking you or? No, no, it's, no. This, this is it's like, just where you are in the room. It's where you are in the room, yeah. I'm is it like sure, but, uh, you can have different speakers from different points of view in the room? or? Yeah, but it's also the way the music is composed. Uh, that, that, that This thing of the dreamy aspect of it uh, is the way the music is composed and it's the tune. And it's very, you know, it's this is like 40 years of mastering certain mm. stuff. It's a combination of things. It's a combination of the light, the combination of the sounds, yeah. the composition, the rhythm, everything. I would call it this total yeah. art piece that is quite complex, but also very simple in the sense of like, this is it. Like you come in, it's a room, you sit down, you lay, you stand, whatever, you move around, there is sound, there is light. You know, like it's not... It sounds very visceral. Yeah, it's completely, it's very intense. It's quite loud also in a way because you also, you know, it's so many sounds and stuff in a way and... Yeah. It's loud in a different way than what I experienced before, mm. I would say. But it's also, it inspired me a lot, I think, in just what art can be and the perception of space mm. and the relation between your body and the space where you are in and, you know, all of this stuff. Just as also a conceptual way of thinking. I don't know what else I can say. But I really recommend if in New York, if it's still open, to see it and also just to read about it. That does sound very interesting. Dream House. The dream House, yeah. And it's a beautiful title also. Yeah. And by... Lamonte Young and Mayan Zazila. Thank you for that recommendation. And thank you for coming here and Thanks talking with me, me today. So, that's it for now for Unpleasant Movies. If you want to get in touch, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. The music for this episode was composed by Umulium. That's Sverre Orgård and Hugh Skarning. That's it for now, so... Bye-bye.